Section 7 of Elizabethan Demonology by Thomas Alfred Spaulding. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Davis. This leads by a natural sequence to the consideration of another and more insidious form of attack upon mankind adopted by the evil spirits. Possession and obsession were methods of assault adopted against the will of the afflicted person, and hardly to be avoided by him without the supernatural intervention of the church. The practice of witchcraft and magic involved the absolute and voluntary barter of body and soul to the evil one, for the purpose of obtaining a few short years of superhuman power to be employed for the gratification of the culprit's avarice, ambition, or desire for revenge. In the strange history of that most inexplicable mental disease, the witchcraft epidemic, as it has been justly called by a high authority on such matters, we moderns are, by the nature of our education and prejudices, completely incapacitated for sympathizing with either the persecutors or their victims. We are at a loss to understand how clear-sighted and upright men, like Sir Matthew Hale, could consent to become parties to a relentless persecution to the death of poor helpless beings whose chief crime in most cases was that they had suffered starvation both in body and in mind. We cannot understand it, because none of us believe in the existence of evil spirits. None, for although there are still a few persons who nominally hold to the ancient faith, as they do to many other respectable but effete traditions, yet they would be at a loss for a reason for the faith that is in them, should they chance to be asked for one, and not one of them would be prepared to make the smallest material sacrifice for the sake of it. It is true that the existence of evil spirits recently received a tardy and somewhat hesitating recognition in our ecclesiastical courts, which at first authoritatively declared that a denial of the existence of the personality of the devil constituted a man a notorious evil liver and depraver of the Book of Common Prayer. But this was promptly reversed by the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council under the auspices of two low-church law lords and two archbishops, with the very vague proviso that they do not mean to decide that these doctrines are otherwise than inconsistent with the formularies of the Church of England. Yet the very contempt with which these portentous declarations of church law have been received shows how great has been the fall of the once almost omnipotent minister of evil. The ancient Satan does indeed exist in some few formularies, but in such a washed-out and flimsy condition as to be the reverse of conspicuous. All that remains of him and of his subordinate legions is the ineffectual ghost of a departed creed, for the resuscitation of which no man will move a finger. It is perfectly impossible for us, therefore, to comprehend, although by an effort we may perhaps bring ourselves to imagine, the horror and loathing with which good men, entirely believing in the existence and omnipresence of countless legions of evil spirits, able and anxious to perpetrate the mischiefs that it has been the object of these pages in some part to describe, would regard those who, for their own selfish gratification, deliberately surrendered their hopes of eternal happiness 
in exchange for an alliance with the devils which would render these ten times more capable than before of working their wicked wills to men believing this no punishment could seem too sudden or too terrible for such offenders against religion and society and no means of possible detection too slight or far-fetched to be neglected indeed it might reasonably appear to them better that many innocent persons should perish with the assurance of future reward for their undeserved sufferings than that a single guilty one should escape undetected and become the medium by which the devil might destroy more souls but the persecuted far more than the persecutors deserve our sympathy although they rarely obtain it it is frequently asserted that the absolute truth of a doctrine is the only support that will enable its adherents successfully to weather the storms of persecution those who assent to this proposition must be prepared to find a large amount of truth in the beliefs known to us under the name of witchcraft if the position is to be successfully maintained for never was any sect persecuted more systematically or with more relentlessness than these little offending heretics protestants and catholics anglicans and calvinists so ready at all times to commit one another to the flames and to the headsmen found in this matter common ground upon which all could heartily unite for the grand purpose of extirpating error when out of the quiet of our own times we look back upon the terrors of the tower and the smoke and glare of smithfield we think with mingled pity and admiration of those brave men and women who in the sixteenth century enriched with their blood and ashes the soil from whence was to spring our political and religious freedom but no wit of admiration hardly a glimmer of pity is even casually evinced for those poor creatures who neglected despised and abhorred were at the same time dying the same agonizing death and passing through the torment of the flames to that something after death the undiscovered country without the sweet assurance which sustained their better remembered fellow-sufferers that beyond the martyr's cross was waiting the martyr's crown no such hope supported those who were condemned to die for the crime of witchcraft their anticipations of the future were as dreary as their memories of the past and no friendly voice was raised or hand stretched out to encourage or console them during that last sad journey their hope of mercy from man was small strangulation before the application of the fire instead of the more lingering and painful death at most their hope of mercy from heaven nothing yet under these circumstances the most auspicious perhaps that could be imagined for the extirpation of a heretical belief persecution failed to effect its object the more the government burnt the witches the more the crime of witchcraft spread and it was not until an attitude of contemptuous toleration was adopted towards the culprits that the belief died down gradually but surely not on account of the conclusiveness of the arguments directed against it but from its own inherent lack of vitality
the history and phenomena of witchcraft have been so admirably treated by more than one modern investigator as to render it unnecessary to deal exhaustively with a subject which presents such a vast amount of material for arrangement and comment the scope of the following remarks will therefore be limited to a consideration of such features of the subject as appear to throw light upon the supernaturalism in macbeth this consideration will be carried out with some minuteness as certain modern critics importing mythological learning that is the outcome of comparatively recent investigation into the interpretation of the text have declared that the three sisters who play such an important part in that drama are not witches at all but are or are intimately allied to the norns or fates of scandinavian paganism it will be the object of the following pages to illustrate the contemporary belief concerning witches and their powers by showing that nearly every characteristic point attributed to the sisters has its counterpart in contemporary witch lore that some of the illusions indeed bear so strong a resemblance to certain events that had transpired not many years before macbeth was written that it is not improbable that shakespeare was alluding to them in much the same off-hand cursory manner as he did to the many incident when writing king lear the first critic whose comments upon this subject call for notice is the eminent gervinus in evident ignorance of the history of witchcraft he says in the witches shakespeare has made use of the popular belief in evil geniuses and in adverse persecutors of mankind and has produced a similar but darker race of beings just as he made use of the belief in fairies in the midsummer night's dream this creation is less attractive and complete but not less masterly the poet in the text of the play itself calls these beings witches only derogatorily they call themselves weird sisters the fates bore this denomination and the sisters remind us indeed of the northern fates or valkyries they appear wild and weather-beaten in exterior and attire common in speech ignoble half-human creatures ugly as the evil one and in like manner old and of neither sex they are guided by more powerful masters their work entirely springs from delight in evil and they are wholly devoid of human sympathies they are simply the embodiment of inward temptation they come in storm and vanish in air like corporeal impulses which originating in the blood cast up bubbles of sin and ambition in the soul they are weird sisters only in the sense in which men carry their own fates within their bosoms this criticism is so entirely subjective and unsupported by evidence that it is difficult to deal satisfactorily with it it will be shown hereafter that this description does not apply in the least to the scandinavian norns while so far as it is true to shakespeare's text it does not clash with contemporary records of the appearance and actions of witches the next writer to bring forward a view of this character was the rev f g flay the well-known shakespeare critic whose ingenious efforts in iconoclasm cause a curious alternation of feeling between admiration and amazement his argument is unfortunately mixed up with a question of textual criticism 
for he rejects certain scenes in the play as the work of the inferior dramatist middleton the question relating to the text will only be noticed so far as it is inextricably involved with the argument respecting the nature of the weird sisters mr flay's position is shortly this he thinks that shakespeare's play commenced with the entrance of macbeth and banquo in the third scene of the first act and that the weird sisters who subsequently take part in that scene are norns not witches and that in the first scene of the fourth act shakespeare discarded the norns and introduced three entirely new characters who were intended to be genuine witches the evidence which can be produced in support of this theory apart from question of style and probability is threefold the first proof is derived from a manuscript entitled the book of plays and notes thereof for common policy written by a somewhat famous magician doctor simon foreman who was implicated in the murder of sir thomas overbury he says in macbeth at the globe sixteen ten the twentieth april saturday there was to be observed first how macbeth and banquo two noblemen of scotland riding through a wood there stood before them three women fairies or nymphs and saluted macbeth saying three times unto him hail macbeth king of cador for thou shalt be a king but thou shalt beget no kings etc this if foreman's account held together decently in other respects would be strong although not conclusive evidence in favor of the theory but the whole note is so full of inconsistencies and misstatements that it is not unfair to conclude either that the writer was not paying marvellous attention to the entertainment he professed to describe or that the player's copy differed in many essential points from the present text not the least conspicuous of these inconsistencies is the account of the sister's greeting of macbeth just quoted subsequently foreman narrates that duncan created macbeth prince of cumberland and that when macbeth had murdered the king the blood on his hands could not be washed off by any means nor from his wife's hands which handled the bloody daggers in hiding them by which means they became both much amazed and affronted such a loose narration cannot be relied upon if the text in question contains any evidence at all rebutting the conclusion that the sisters are intended to be women fairies or nymphs the second piece of the evidence is the story of macbeth as it is narrated by hollinshead from which shakespeare derived his material in that account we read that it fortuned as macbeth and banquo journeyed toward Ferres, where the king then lay they went sporting by the way together without other company save only themselves passing through the woods and fields when suddenly in the midst of a land there met them three women in strange and wild apparel resembling creatures of elder world whom when they attentively beheld wondering much at the sight the first of them spake and said all hail macbeth thane of glams for he had lately entered into that dignity and office by the death of his father sunil the second of them said hail macbeth thane of cador but the third said all hail macbeth that hereafter shall be king of scotland afterwards the common opinion was that these women were either the weird sisters 
that is as ye would say the goddesses of destiny or else some nymphs or fairies endued with knowledge of prophecy by their necromantical science because everything came to pass as they had spoken this is all that is heard of these goddesses of destiny in hollinshead's narrative macbeth is warned to beware macduff by certain wizards in whose words he put great confidence and the false promises were made to him by a certain witch whom he had in great trust who had told him that he should never be slain with man born of any woman nor vanquished till the wood of burnane came to the castle of dunsinane in this account we find that the supernatural communications adopted by shakespeare were derived from three sources and the contention is that he has retained two of them the goddesses of destiny and the witches and the evidence of this retention is the third proof relied on namely that the stage direction in the first folio act four scene one is enter hecate and the other three witches when three characters supposed to be witches are already upon the scene hollinshead's narrative makes it clear that the idea of the goddesses of destiny was distinctly suggested to shakespeare's mind as well as that of the witches as the means of supernatural influence the question is did he retain both or did he reject one and retain the other it can scarcely be doubted that one such influence running through the play would conduce to harmony and unity of idea and as shakespeare not a servile follower of his source in any case has interwoven in macbeth the totally distinct narrative of the murder of king death it is hardly to be supposed that he would scruple to blend these two different sets of characters if any advantage were to be gained by so doing as to the stage direction in the first folio it is difficult to see what it would prove even supposing that the folio were the most scrupulous piece of editorial work that had ever been effected it presupposes that the weird sisters are on the stage as well as the witches but it is perfectly clear that the witches continue the dialogue so the other more powerful beings must be supposed to be standing silent in the background a suggestion so monstrous that it is hardly necessary to refer to the slovenliness of the folio stage directions to show how unsatisfactory an argument based upon one of them must be the evidence of foreman and hollinshead has been stated fully in order that the reader may be in possession of all the materials that may be necessary for forming an accurate judgment upon the point in question but it seems to be less relied upon than the supposition that the appearance and powers of the beings in the admittedly genuine part of the third scene of the first act are not those formally attributed to witches and that shakespeare having once decided to represent norns would never have degraded them to three old women who were called by paddock and grimalkin sail in sieves kill swine serve hecate and deal in all the common charms allusions and incantations of vulgar witches the three who look not like the inhabitants of the earth and yet are aunt they who can look into the seeds of time and say which grain will grow they who seem corporal but melt into the air like bubbles of the earth the wayward sisters who make themselves air and have in them more than mortal knowledge are not beings of this stamp now there is a great mass of contemporary evidence 
to show that these supposed characteristics of the norns are in fact some of the chief attributes of the witches of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries if this be so if it can be proved that the supposed goddesses of destiny of the play in reality possess no higher powers than could be acquired by ordinary communication with evil spirits then no weight must be attached to the vague stage direction in the folio occurring as it does in a volume notorious for the extreme carelessness with which it was produced and it must be admitted that the goddesses of destiny of holland's head were sacrificed for the sake of the witches if in addition to this it can be shown that there was a very satisfactory reason why the witches should have been chosen as the representatives of the evil influence instead of the norns the argument will be as complete as it is possible to make it but before proceeding to examine the contemporary evidence it is necessary in order to obtain a complete conception of the mythological view of the weird sisters to notice a piece of criticism that is at once an expansion of and a variation upon the theory just stated it is suggested that the sisters of macbeth are but three in number but that shakespeare drew upon scandinavian mythology for a portion of the material he used in constructing these characters and that he derived the rest from the traditions of contemporary witchcraft in fact that the sisters are hybrids between norns and witches the supposed proof of this is that each sister exercises the special function of one of the norns the third is the special prophetess whilst the first takes cognizance of the past and the second of the present in affairs connected with humanity these are the tasks of erder verdandi and skulta the first begins by asking when shall we three meet again the second decides the time when the battles lost or won the third the future prophecies that will be ere set of sun the first again asks where the second decides upon the heath the third the future prophecies there to meet with macbeth but their role is most clearly brought out in the famous hails first erder past all hail macbeth hail to thee thane of glamps second verdandi present all hail macbeth hail to thee thane of cador third skulta all hail macbeth thou shalt be king hereafter this sequence is supposed to be retained in other of the sisters speeches but a perusal of these will soon show that it is only in the second of the above quotations that it is recognizable with any definiteness and this it must be remembered is an almost verbal transcript from holland's head and not an original conception of shakespeare's who might feel himself quite justified in changing the characters of the speakers while retaining their utterances in addition to this the natural sequence is in many cases utterly and unnecessarily violated as for instance in act one scene three where erder who should be solely occupied with past matters predicts with extreme minuteness the results that are to follow from her projected voyage to aleppo and that without any expression of resentment but rather with promise of assistance from skulta whose province she is thus invading 
but this latter piece of criticism seems open to one grave objection to which the former is not liable mr flay separates the portions of the play which are undoubtedly to be assigned to witches from the parts he gives to his norns and attributes them to different characters the other mixes up the witch and norn elements in one confused mass the earlier critic saw the absurdity of such a supposition when he wrote shakespeare may have raised the wizard and witches of the latter parts of hollinshead to the weird sisters of the former parts but the converse process is impossible is it conceivable that shakespeare who as most people admit was a man of some poetic feeling being in possession of the beautiful norn legend the silent fate goddesses sitting at the foot of yggdrasil the mysterious tree of human existence and watering its roots with water from the sacred spring could ruthlessly and without cause mar the charm of the legend by the gratuitous introduction of the gross and primarily unpoetical details incident to the practice of witchcraft no man with a glimmer of poetry in his soul will imagine it for a moment the separation of characters is more credible than this but if that theory can be shown to be unfounded there is no improbability in supposing that shakespeare finding that the question of witchcraft was in consequence of events that had taken place not long before the time of the production of macbeth absorbing the attention of all men from king to peasant should set himself to deal with such a popular subject and by the magic of his art so raise it out of its degradation into the region of poetry that men should wonder and say can this be witchcraft indeed end of section seven